With obesity on the rise in many Western countries, researchers have tried to understand why we're overeating. Despite the large volume of research, there seems to be no simple solution. Could it be that we're serving ourselves too much? Do we lack the information to make good decisions? Or is it possible that the amount of food we eat has something to do with the size of our plates? Welcome to another episode of Think Business Futures. My name's David Brown. I'm Associate Dean Excel Engagement in the UTS Business School. And I'm Nicole Sutton, a lecturer at the UTS Business School too. Today on Think Business Futures, we're taking cutting-edge research, coupled with real-world examples, to unpack what's actually going on in the business world. And on this episode, we're talking about food regulation, helping us help ourselves. We're really excited today to have Natalina Zlatevska, uh, who is a senior lecturer here in marketing at the UTS Business School. And in her research, she examines different interventions aimed at influencing people's consumption of food. Welcome, Nat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, how did you first get interested in studying people's eating habits? Okay, so the way I first got interested in the topic was... I actually came across two articles in one of our top journals publishing the same issue on the same topic, Mm -hmm. which was portion size. And they had different results and different explanations for the results. So the thing that kind of got me about that was the fact that you don't actually usually see two papers in the same issue published on the same topic in the same journal. And the fact that there were different kind of reasonings behind the effects that they were getting Um, got me quite interested to look into it a little bit further and then we started to run some tests to try to replicate Um, and then that actually led to the meta-analysis which was looking at the whole literature and portion size and the aggregate across that and trying to actually understand the effect. That's interesting. So it was really an unexplained finding in prior research that you were trying to reconcile. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you've examined lots of different interventions or what we might describe as nudges, and their effect on people's consumption patterns. So we'd like to spend a little bit of time unpicking what you've actually looked at and what you've found. So maybe what we can start with is portion size. And what effect does having larger portions have on how much we consume? So the basic idea with portion size is that if I give you more, you eat more, right? And we wanted to confirm that with our research and actually try to understand how much more. So quantify the effect and what we've found is that if you double the size of a portion you eat in excess of about 30 percent more food so and that is up to a point and it's up to almost half a kilo of food and then it's only then that you start to kind of stop eating as much (laughs) wait a second Half a kilo of food? Yeah, it's it's a lot. <laughs> you get to half a kilo and you get a look, oops. Yeah, probably ate too, too much. Yep. Yep. Wow. Just so I can understand the, the mechanics here of this relation. So you're saying if you double the portion size, then people will then, on average, consume perhaps 30% more. Yeah, So and it varies with the size of the original portion. So, I mean, with the smaller portion, so mm-hmm. 200, up to about 200, 300 grams, you're almost eating pretty much everything that's on, you know, in the package or even on your plate. So we call them plate cleaners. <laughs> they don't realise, you just don't realise how plate much food. Plate cleaners? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, because I'm just trying to picture, can you help me picture in my head what 200 grams looks like? So uh, 30 grams 
is the size, a typical size of a snack, like an M&M snack size, yep. little chocolate bar that you yep. get in a pack. That's 30 grams. That's 30 grams. Okay. So you're talking about a lot of chocolate. So times that by 10 and we will mindlessly eat yep. just whatever is put in front. We'll clean the plate that's at exactly that point. Right. And then after that, we'll start to <laughs> slow down. Yep. But it's really only once we get to half a kilo that yep. we go, oh, maybe I don't need to eat everything that's on my plate right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh, So I'm still reeling from that, actually. <laughs> so is, like, are portion sizes then actually growing in Australia? So it's an interesting question. Um, we've actually, in some of our research, gone back and looked at historical data of portion sizes of fast food, and we've found that in some cases, some portion sizes have actually decreased. But typically, I mean, on average, you'd say that the size of portions have increased. If you've gone and had a, a burger lately, right, at a fast food chain, you might have noticed that you know, they're probably a little Are bit they smaller. smaller. A little oh, bit really? smaller, yeah. A little bit smaller, but they've gone up in price, though. Oh, that's probably why they're smaller. And so that's about the size of the amount of food that's on the plate. Mm -hmm. What about the actual size of the plate itself? Does that have an effect? Yeah, it does have an effect. With plate sizes, I mean, there is the lay recommendation that if you want to eat less, just put your food onto a smaller size plate because, I mean, I'm looking at the plate of cookies in front of us right now and it's a tiny plate that's overfilling with cookies, but it looks like a lot of cookies there. So it, it does look al- like a lot of cookies. It's an illusion. So you just tend to think that there's more food in your plate and it makes you feel like you're more full, I guess, once you've eaten the food. So it's a good trick to help you eat less. Okay. That's interesting. So that provides an explanation for plate size. But if I can sort of drag you back to portion size, mm-hmm. why is it that we get to half a kilo before we go, oh, about enough. I mean, what's the reasoning behind this? So I guess the the main reason, Nicole, you kind of mentioned it before, it is mindless eating. I mean, Mm -hmm. we simply um, are very poor at estimating size. We look at food and, I mean, mean, looking at that plate of cookies there, I couldn't honestly tell you how much that would weigh, right? We're just judges of whether it looks small, medium or large. That's influenced by the context that it's on. And in that case, it's the plate, the size of plate that it's sitting on. And we are just, I mean, and that's why we do get that effect at about half a kilo, because then it becomes, it looks big. Right, mm. So we're very bad at judging the smaller sizes and, and mm. 100 grams, 200 grams is actually not a small size, but we yeah. can't really figure it out until it's almost too big. As well as examining the containers that food has come in, you've also done some research looking at the role of information. Um, So I was wondering, would you be able to tell us a little bit about, for example, the effect that nutritional disclosures or calorie disclosures on menus have? Yeah, so we've done some work looking at um, calorie disclosures on menu items and also front of pack nutrition labels. So with the calorie disclosures on menus, the idea behind this was based in what on what was happening in the US. So in 2010, the idea to actually include calorie information voluntarily on menu boards was introduced with the idea that it would become mandatory a few years later on. So 2018, and we're still trying to figure out this legislation, but it is a contentious issue and it's contentious because actually changing menu boards for restaurants is expensive to do and 
in the US it was estimated in excess of 300 million because everything, you need to have a nutritionist come in and weigh all the food. And then if you have pizza, for example, and there was a lot of issues around um, calorie counts on pizza, you can have a little bit more cheese, a little bit more pepperoni on a pizza. So how do you actually quantify that and represent the correct calorie amounts? And the literature on calorie disclosure was mixed. So some were finding or saying that there was an effect. So yeah, it's an, it's a good thing to implement, even though it's expensive. And other studies were saying, well, actually, this is useless because no one goes into a fast food restaurant and looks at the calorie counts on a menu and then changes their decision to eat at that fast food restaurant. So we conducted a meta-analysis to actually definitively find whether or not, whether there is an effect. Yeah, okay. So it's a way of actually, instead of doing another study, gathering more data, you actually step back and are able to pull together the insights of all the published work that already exists out there. Okay, cool. Sorry to interrupt there. So back to the calorie disclosure. So you've done this meta-analysis of what all the different studies around these calorie disclosures. Yeah, so we identified an effect, which was great. Uh, It was about a 30 calorie difference. Now, the effect was significant, but it was very small. So, yes, there is an effect. Mm -hmm. It is a small effect. I mean, 30 calories is probably a tablespoon of sugar Mm -hmm. um, in terms of changing your decision. But the cool thing in that research was uh, the moderators that we identified. So it had a stronger effect, particularly for people who are overweight. So we actually were able to pull BMIs from the original data. And that was about a 100 plus calorie difference, which is... The size of, you know, typical sort of snack size. Yeah. Now, with some sub- sub-segments of consumers, I mean, they're probably more likely to frequent restaurants. So you would expect that that effect would accumulate yeah, over so time. Yeah, so if you're having a lot of takeout bigger. all the time and you're regularly changing your decision based on this, then I imagine it would have a pretty large cumulative effect. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And did it have an effect on the retailers as well? It did. And that was the surprising part of our results because we went back and had a look at historical menus. With the effect on retailers, though, some published studies had actually looked at whether or not retailers had changed their offerings. And it was found that retailers, and this is kind of the, the cool thing of the legislation, retailers are adjusting. And it's almost like, um, it's like a disclosure. I mean, if with any financial statements and things like that, typically, I mean, if you have to, if a company has to disclose something and they know that it's public, there is the effect more so in terms of changing, changing. Yeah, they're going to get a little bit shy. Yeah, right? that's right. Like, that's right. Oh, if we're going to have to disclose how many calories are in our burgers, maybe we'll just yeah. make them slightly less. And the other thing was also offering more healthier items on the menu mm. as well. So, Nat, can I just take you back to something that we are talking about a little bit earlier, and that's labelling with food packs. So, does this actually affect the products we buy at the supermarket? Uh, it does. It does. So, um, front of fact, labelling is a big issue, and it's a big issue all around the world. So, we've had changes in the UK, we've got the, front of, the facts up front, um, changes in the US and in Australia, obviously, we've got our star rating system. So... There is this issue around, is it effective, right? Because these these interventions are not cheap for a manufacturer to introduce. I mean, every time you have to make a change, it costs money. In some cases, that 
might be passed on to the consumer. So you really need to think about what's the effectiveness of, of these labels. And the literature around it is contentious, again, and there's a number of factors and reasons why. So with the numeric kind of front of pack labels, numerical literacy for consumers typically is, it, it's hard, right? So, I mean, you tell them that it's you know, 100 calories or if you convert it to kilojoules in Australia, I mean, what does that mean for the typical consumer? I mean, someone is not watching their weight and isn't open or understanding of, of the meaning of these, you know, calories versus kilojoules and how much you should be having. And then you've got the recommended daily intake as well. It's a lot of information to process. So that's one issue around it. And the other one is um, fluency. So one of the things that you mentioned is, well, if they're numerate or have an understanding of the nature of the measurement, kilojoules or calories or whatever mm. the case is, that has some influence. Are there other demographic variations that you would expect to see that would have some influence on whether they would take this into account in a purchase decision? So with consumers, I mean, even if they are um, aware of the issues, the question is, do they notice the information and does it always sway them? And I had a really interesting conversation uh, recently with someone who is a researcher in medicine around the issues of obesity, and she wasn't aware of the star labeling system. And this is, I mean, this is her livelihood. So, so I mean, even with, and some of the, and the literature shown, I mean, particularly with things like portion size as well, nutritionists can't look at food and actually tell you often in often cases how much is on your plate. So even if you're kind of aware of the issue, it doesn't necessarily always mean that you'll be open to, yeah, you'd say probably in a survey that, calorie content would influence and fat content and sugar content given you know the um, talk around sugar at the moment but the question is in your everyday shopping habits when you're in a supermarket that has so many products and so many labels and you're looking at comparisons between products and you're looking at comparisons of price as well how much of an influence does it really have in a real world setting well that was I guess one of the things I was thinking about Mm. that it's as difficult it's quite difficult to figure out what's the optimal price point in a product, you know, with size and how much do you That's get right. and so on, let alone, you know, calorie content or any other sort of nutrition-related information. So I suspect there's massive information overload for yeah. consumers compounded by the fact that maybe this is just my experience, but if I have to go to the supermarket, I just want to get in and get out and go do something far more interesting than shopping for groceries. Hi, Jason the producer here. David might not be a big fan of shopping, but Nicole and I jumped at the opportunity to go to the shops with Natalina. We wanted to learn more about food pack labeling and specifically the Hellstar rating system. What do you think, Nicole? I'm a bit nervous now. We're going deep into the recesses of an aisle. I mean, we're looking at aisle number one here, and it's health and well-being. It's promising, although on the left-hand side, I can see maple syrup and chocolate-flavoured toffee. (laughs) This is an American product, and so they've got a totally different front of pack label. So they're actually, in terms of the the calories, the single facts up front label. So they say 45 calories per one tablespoon. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, a good kind of question is, is this a little bit more useful? Than the health star rating. Than the health star rating, or our energy content of 702 kilojoules per 100 grams. 
So which one's easier to understand? Oh. oh. Where are we now? We are in the cereal aisle, and I love breakfast, so let's go. Okay, but I'm standing here looking at all these... <laughs> all these chewy. muesli bars. See, so to me, muesli bar is like, yep. flavor muesli bar is a four-star rating. It's got 50% whole grain. So here I'm, I'm weighing up, I think you said before there's something about like vice and virtue, right? Like, I'm weighing this up. I'm looking at limited edition Lamington muesli bars. It's a conflicting message. It's right. both a vice and a virtue together in the one pub. Yeah, because on like the front of this, this box, I've got four-star health ratings, 50% whole grain, and then I'm also quite aware that it's a chewy Lamington. So if I'm trying to interpret this, there's per serving, there's 500 kilojoules. How many... How many kilojoules am I meant to be eating a day? 7,000. 7,000, 8,000. Yeah, in calories, it's probably about 15 to 1,500 to about 2,000 yeah. calories. Yeah, so it's, like, that's still a lot of energy, but just a little little bar. Mm. I guess it's within within the category, okay. These don't have anything. Well, they have the facts up front. The snapshot with the recommended daily intake. But the problem with the recommended daily intake is it's typically based on um, so I know with the US it's about the 2,000 calories mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is not the same for everybody yeah right yeah. so is it based on body size on that's right and gender as mm-hmm. well yeah and I imagine also like activity level there's just a lot of information yeah. yeah it's a little bit overwhelming actually I mean and this is just music wise yeah yeah, I mean, you've got so many different <laughs> labels on the front of these. Oh, look, here we go. There's, it, huh. It actually explaining, we've got some explanation of what this health star rating means. The government's health star rating makes it easy to compare similar packaged foods. More stars, healthier choice. But the Simple. problem with the star rating is it's within category. So it's not that muesli bars are healthier, right? But within your choice of muesli bars... This is a better muesli bar. Breakfast biscuits. Uh, oh, here we go. I don't normally do this. I don't normally pick up something and then go, okay, let's look at the nutritional information. No, most people don't. Most like people breakfast don't. Breakfast biscuits. Yeah, they'll do. In fact, I'm just putting them in my basket. That's. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. On this episode, we're talking about how plate size and some other things may have an effect on our consumption habits. So to help us understand this, we're talking to Natalina from the UTS Business School. So Nat... These research findings sound really interesting, uh, but I'm interested, given that this research comes from studying people in the lab, what are some of the challenges of studying mindless eating in that context? Yeah, so conducting this type of research in a lab setting is extremely challenging. Um, And it does vary. The way that we do it does vary by discipline. 
so in more of the nutritional sciences, people are told that they're coming into the lab and they're participating in an eating study. So a lot of times what we're seeing by reviewing that literature is all of a sudden you become mindful of your consumption because you know that someone is going to be actually you know, looking at you through you know, almost like a microscope and trying to figure out you know, well, what influenced how much you ate and how much did you eat, etc, etc. Um, what we do in our discipline in the business school is we tell people that um, they're participating in a study and we have a cover story around it so they don't actually know that they're participating in a food study and they come in and we have often have snacks provided for them. So they might be evaluating an ad or watching a TED Talk is another one of my favourites. Um, and the snacks are there just like the plate of cookies are here and you can help yourself. And what we then do is we covertly actually measure. So we usually have scales at the back of the lab and we weigh how much... <laughs> <laughs> we weigh how much people are eating uh, once they've left the room. As in like the <laughs> amount of food or the person? <laughs> the, the amount of food, but we have, um, we with the weighing of the person, to you can manipulate regulatory restraint in someone. So I can have any person come into the lab and we can actually manipulate and make them become self-conscious of what they're eating. And the way that you do that is you have a mirror in the room and you have a set of scales in front of that mirror. And so you make them weigh themselves. You take it down in front of the mirror and then all of a sudden they're controlling their behavior in the lab. Oh, wow. Okay. So... Yeah, I, I can imagine it is quite challenging then to be able to measure people's mindless eating and you have to be quite sneaky yeah. um, in doing so. So why is this a problem in terms of like the broader research agenda? With the broader research agenda, ultimately it's to tackle obesity, right? And we're looking at trying to identify the factors that influence people to overconsume, which leads to the broader sort of health problem. And we're trying to come up with and identify interventions that potentially might help or small nudges that might help changing behaviour. But the problem is that to actually look at obesity, you need to be having or looking at weight as the outcome. And that's really hard to determine in a lab, right? People come in into a lab setting and you have them for an hour slot. Um, they eat some food, you might covertly weigh it, and then they go and go on their way. So what we don't know is compensation once they've left the lab. Um, in nutrition, there are some studies that actually have participants come into a specially designed lab, so it has a caloric meter, um, where everything is controlled, right? Even in terms of the expenditure of calories, you know, the air quality, everything is controlled. Everything that they put into their mouth for the period of a week is controlled. Now, they're the ultimate kind of studies that look at the effect of an intervention on weight loss, but they're very difficult to run, um, very expensive to run as well. And so there are issues around doing that. But we do, we definitely do need more research that looks at the end goal of weight loss mm. or changes in weight, because at the moment we are looking at consumption and it's presumed that there is a linear effect between amount consumed and changes in weight. So amount consumed a single point in time and changes in weight. And obviously we know that in the real life, you know, in the real world, we are influenced by friends and family, social situations. There's a lot of contextual factors, environmental influences that we need to contend with that might also have a counter influence to how much we're eating. So, um, you know, we, we're definitely, and I think there is movement towards 
at least identifying and talking about a different endpoint when looking at these obesity-related issues. But we just have to be aware that consumption is a great place to start, but it does not necessarily equate to changes in weight. We mm. just have to at least be conscious of it. So, Nat, earlier you talked about nudges. What do you mean by this? So, with nudge type of in- interventions related to consumption, we're talking about small changes that you can make in your everyday life that can positively influence your behaviour and influence you to consume less. So changing the size of the portion is one of them, breaking up a portion into multiple smaller pieces, changing the size of your plate, placing food at in a different location. So there's been a great study by Brian Wansink where they had food placed on the desk. So the desk is probably the worst place to be placing food. Make sure it's in the kitchen or within walking distance, out of sight, out of mind. So it's kind of easily implementable interventions um, which have an effect on, on behaviour change. And if we think about nudge theory more generally, one of the key philosophical questions that perhaps we could unpick here is the extent that we or governments should be doing this in the first place, whether it's okay to engage in what some would call this kind of soft-form soft paternalism. What do you think? So it's a hard question to answer uh, because there's two sides to that. And I mean, from a consumer perspective, and being a marketer in a business school and looking at this topic, from a consumer's perspective, um, consumers want more choice, right? And they want freedom of choice. And if we look at some of the changes that have been proposed historically, so for example, Mayor Bloomberg proposed that supersized soft drinks, and mind you, supersized soft drinks was classified as anything above 500 mils. The proposal was that they should be banned in New York City. If we are serious about fighting obesity, we have to be honest about what causes it and we have to have the courage to tackle it head on. Now, the best science tells us that sugary drinks are a leading cause of obesity. We have a responsibility as human beings to do something. And so while other people will wring their hands over the problem of sugary drinks in New York City, we're doing something about it. And that was actually overturned because consumers were saying, well, if I want my supersized soft drink from the AMC movie theatre, you shouldn't be in control of that. So I'm, you know, I've given my freedom of choice and, uh, and I want to actually protect my freedom of choice. So, but on the other hand, you have consumers um, who are in the middle of kind of this obesity epidemic who... Uh, also wanting, going back to this idea of outsourcing self-regulation, they, they need help, right? And they want to, you know, they want governments to step in and intervene and to a point though, right? And as long as they, they're probably given a choice in that matter and it, it's really hard. It's mm. the question of, you know, how much should um, our own regulation of food consumption, right, which is kind of a basic food consumption being a basic human need, how much of that should be regulated by someone else, but you have consumers operating in a context of you know, abundance in supermarkets mm. where they're given so much choice, right? And things come in multiple sizes and multiple package designs and things like that. So mm. it's a hard one to answer. It, it doesn't really seem like uh, a fair fight. I, like, I understand the role of consumer choice and us saying we should have complete freedom to make our own choices. But when we walk into a supermarket or a restaurant, I mean, it's not as if we have free choice as we walk in there anyway. There is already forces at work 
trying to shape us, trying to persuade us to get the, to eat the junk food or to eat more or to buy more anyway, right? Yeah, I think probably some of the best outcomes that we're seeing from these larger sort of interventions, so the mandatory calorie labelling, the talk of the sugar tax as well recently, is that industry is trying to change practice. And ultimately, I think, you know, regardless of how we feel about that, um, I mean, that's probably where those positive influences will start to then trickle down to consumers because you're right, I mean, a consumer walks into the supermarket and it's like chicken and the egg question, right? So the consumer has demand for a product and that product is created for the consumer. But at the same time, that product is then created for the consumer, which can also influence their demand. And we've seen that with some of the studies that we've run. I mean, going back to the size of the snack, the snack size bar of chocolate. So we asked consumers out of um, a huge bag, it was a huge bag of M&Ms, and we said, identify the typical size, the typical portion size of chocolate. And when we actually went back and aggregated those results and and looked at um, the average, and it was 30 grams, which is that snack size bar of chocolate. So there is a question of, you know, do consumers have these personal consumption norms that influence their behaviour or are those norms influenced by industry, which then, you know, over time, you know, by having these products on, on supermarket shelves helps shape what consumers are deemed to be normal. Yeah. And I think also in this though as well, I mean, we've got the freedom of the individual consumer to have choice. But on the other hand, where where comes into play the fact that as a society, we have to bear the cost of people's bad choices in terms of, you know, providing health care for people that uh, yeah have made poor eating choices? So given that a lot of consumption is driven by marketing. I don't want to be too anti-marketing here, but you know, you watch ads on television or there's billboards, you know, consume, consume. We're in a society where economic expansion is driven by consumption. The incentive for firms is get us to eat more, get us to consume more, get us to spend more. Now that's kind of in contrast to what you're saying about, well, actually, we can also reduce the amount you eat, reduce the amount you consume. So you're kind of creating demand and controlling demand simultaneously. So I think I'll probably step in here for a second. And you know, what, what I teach my students in the you know marketing 101, fundamentals of marketing, and when you say what is marketing, marketing is the creation of value. So for a consumer, value is equated with size. So if I give you, I mean, if you go into a restaurant and I only give you a tiny piece you know, a really small burger, for example, or a tiny piece of steak, you'll judge that and come up with an evaluation of value for that restaurant. So, I mean, this is what I was saying with the chicken and the egg question, right? So consumers equate value and satisfaction with the product, and it just so happens that size is one of the drivers of that. So marketers over time have adapted to that, and we see that in the U.S. in particular. If you've had a meal, like a, even a salad in the U.S., I mean, they're huge. Those plates are huge, and the serving sizes are huge. And that is in response to consumers saying, you know, this sort of implicit idea of size equals value. But what we're also finding is that there are ways that you can actually satisfy that by changing things like the the energy density of the food, where it can be the same size. I mean, it can even be bigger, but the, the nutritional content of the food can be better, right? And you can have healthier offerings. So 
it's not a kind of you know end all sort of question. It's we we know how the market works and we know. I mean, obviously, consumption is. I mean, this this is how our economy works. So, but there there are ways that companies and industry can adapt to kind of understand the bigger societal needs um, of the issue and also the needs of the consumer. And some of these policy changes or implications um, are addressing or encouraging industry to do that, regardless of how we feel about that. I mean, ultimately, a lot of times, you know, the junk food industry is always cast as the bad guys. And I mean, there's, there's some horrific stories around some of the practices by industry around advertising to children. But it is, there are a number of stakeholders in the issue, and I think it's something that we probably shouldn't forget. And it has to be some sort of common ground. And it's not just, you know, we simply can't say that junk food shouldn't exist because that just won't work, right? Consumers will always want it, but it's a question of, okay, well, what can we do to make sure that consumers are still perceiving these products as valuable and we still have the contribution by consumers to buying these products, but companies need to also take a step back and say, okay, well, there are bigger societal issues at play and we are a key stakeholder in that and we need to adjust. And I think we're seeing baby steps towards it, but we are seeing some changes. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with support from 2SER 107.3. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more of the show on your favourite podcast app. I'd like to say thank you to Natalina Slateska for joining us to talk to us today. You can find information about Natalina's research on her website. Yes, it's natalinaslatevska.com. You can find all this information on our website, tosi.com slash thinkbusinessfutures, or one word. Uh, you can send us an email at thinkbusiness at tosi.com. Till next time. Till next time.